This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. This season of the podcast is produced by The Future of Truth, a project based at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, which explores what truth is, where it's going, and why it matters for our democracy. The project is made possible by generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The podcast features discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the cultural and political role of concepts like truth, fact, information, and expertise. Today, my guest is Sophia Rosenfeld. Sophia is Walter H. Annenberg Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. She specializes in European and American intellectual and cultural history, with focus on the Enlightenment, the transatlantic age of revolutions, and the legacy of the 18th century for modern democracy. I invited Sophia on the program today to talk about themes from her fantastic 2018 book, which is titled Democracy and Truth, A Short History. Hi, Sophia. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm fine. How are you today? Very well. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Um, Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, So, you know, in the past four to five years, maybe a little bit longer, um, it seems as if terms and maybe even concepts like fake news and post-truth and the reality-based community and even things like alternative facts, these have all become sort of central um, in our political vernacular. Um, and this centrality and some of the, the sort of new coinage of these terms um, encourages one to think that um, anxieties about the place of truth, fact, evidence, and expertise um, in our democratic society uh, are new. Um, But you've argued uh, in your book, again, Democracy and Truth, A Short History, that these tensions and concerns aren't new. Um, Could you spell out that historical narrative for us a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. I do think it's really important to pay attention to how we got to where we are today. And that means, for me at least, looking at the longer history of democracy 
There's been a lot of talk in the last few years about how we've lost track of truth, but very little about how truth and democracy are actually supposed to be related to each other. And there was a lot of talk of this question, even at the founding moment. If we go back to 1776 or 1789 in France, you'll see that democracy was always supposed to be attached to truth, but in a very, really particular way. And here's what I think is odd. On the one hand, those who proposed new forms of popular sovereignty all suggested that what would be different from monarchies in the past is that popular sovereignty would be closely attached to the truth. And the truth in two senses, in the moral sense of the opposite of lies and the epistemological sense of the opposite of misinformation or error or unsubstantiated belief. And so where monarchies had been characterized by deception and lies and hidden information, secrecy, democracies would be committed to sincerity, to transparency, to accuracy. And one of the things promised was that this kind of truth would be both the foundation on which policy got made, but also a kind of product of democracy, something like an aspiration almost. So these, at least rhetorically, democracy and truth were supposed to have this very close connection. However, there was a big catch, and here's the catch. No one person, no one institution, no one method was going to be given a monopoly on determining what that truth was. Instead, it was going to be a kind of collective product, a product of somehow it was going to be worked out in this kind of messy way between ordinary people, their representatives, and experts in and out of the government, though the term expert doesn't really exist until the 19th century, there's already some idea that you need good information to get anywhere. And so this left truth always being both highly regarded as an aspiration and messy and often really contentious. People have fought over who gets to say what's true and how they determine what that is, as well as what truth consists of ever since. And I would say, actually, that they're the two things that are supposed to balance each other, which is ordinary people's take on what's true and expert take on what's true, have always been in something of a tension. And there's always been some threat on the one hand of too much expertise that would get you to toward something like technocratic government, and always the threat of too much ordinary people's know-how without expertise, which would get you towards something like populist truth or a kind of common sense relationship to truth. When they're in balance, early thinkers about democracy considered, you might have something like a consensual low-lying level of um, shared reality. But when they were out of whack, there was always going to be a danger. And I think that's the, the sort of a in a nutshell, the uh, a long-winded way of telling a long story about the history of truth ever since the 18th century. Yeah, and I guess that, you know, it, it's an interesting um, uh, kind of inversion in a way, because if, um, if we go back to thinking about you know, sort of ancient critics of democracy, particularly Plato, <laughs> right? Because he's there's a there's a there's a there's a concern about truth um, 
uh, at the core of the the criticism of democracy that um, shows up in the Republic, which is that um, it's democracies are political systems. I mean, he's thinking of ancient democracy, not modern democracy, but democracies are political systems where people have to form their own opinions about things. Um, and uh, uh, in the Platonic argument, um, uh, people are too vulnerable to certain forms of manipulation uh, by um, rhetoricians in particular. Um, and so the, they're, they're, even if they're legitimately and sincerely concerned about truth, um, that very concern and the sincerity of it can make them vulnerable to uh, um, to lies, uh, to you know, or as as Socrates puts it in the the Gorgias, to flattery. <laughs> um, and I suppose that um, you know part of the the modern story, I guess you get part of this in the the Federalist Papers at least, um, is that uh, if you get a group of people together, all devoted <laughs> to that kind of aspiration. Um, then some of their individual cognitive flaws might um, uh, might insulate uh, or might cancel each other out or work uh, against uh, the cognitive flaws of others in ways that insulate the group uh, from um, uh, that kind of uh, pathology. Is that part of the story too? It's an interesting question. I mean, the people who call themselves today epistemic Democrats, it's a kind of fancy way for saying people who actually believe that groups of people put together with conflicting ideas and knowledge will, in a sense, come up with better knowledge than any other system. I'm not sure that democracy itself necessarily produces better knowledge. I think today we're seeing some of the dangers of the opposite taking place. But, there <laughs> is, but, but the, even the theory of juries depends on the idea that a group of people reasoning together with facts on hand will come up with something that's about as close to the truth as we can get. I, I'm not sure this is empirically necessarily demonstrable, but it is a very important theory. And it's maybe one of those theories where you say, well, it doesn't sound perfect, but the opposite might be worse, which is giving <laughs> one person too much authority in any capacity as judge, as uh, political leader to decide on his or her own what constitutes truth. And I think it's important here to also point out that there are a variety of kinds of truths that politics deals with. There's kind of factual truths about what happened and things that we can perhaps agree upon with, and if there's evidence uh, that we can all accept. And then there are sort of moral truths, which get us in some ways closer to opinions. In, not always, but big, important truths that d democracies don't really require everybody to agree upon. They agree that uh, they depend upon a certain agreement upon facts, but less about those large moral truths. Right, right. That's interesting. So, the 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 odd relationship between uh, sort of truth and democracy um, uh, is not new. Um, but um, do you think that? Um, some of the, the the way that oddness manifests itself, um, the way the, the tensions between democracy and, shall we say, epistemic ideals like, you know, rationality and reasonableness and, uh, uh, and you know, believing on the basis of good reasons and these sorts of things. Um, do you think that some of those tensions um, 
have um, intensified or taken on new um, new contours in light of um, some of the uh, you know modifications in our social and technological environment? Oh, absolutely. I don't think, and I think here I'll sound like a historian. Nothing's ever static. So right. though this is, of course, in some ways, I'm describing the deep history of democratic thinking about truth. It's looked different in different places and times. So the constants in our midst, you might say, look, misinformation isn't really new and neither is disinformation. There have always been rumors. There have always been conspiracy theories. A lot of our conspiracy theories today actually draw upon really old elements. You know, when we're talking about space lasers, that may be a new one this week um, coming from the discussion of Marjorie Taylor Greene. But um, blaming the Rothschilds, for instance, for... uh, for problems in our midst is hardly new. And in fact, we all know politicians have always lied. So the idea that uh, we ever lived in a world in which politicians were scrupulously honest is hard to fathom also. And so there are elements which you could look at of our current moment and say, look, we what's so different? We've got a lot of conspiracy thinking going on. We have this, um, you know, we have politicians who are spinning all the time. People are arguing about truth. And I would say, yes, that is true. But there are some things that make this moment look different. The most obvious one, of course, has been the explosion of unvetted and largely partisan information found outside of traditional institutions that are in the business of vetting information. So Rather than relying on, you know, we all know this, rather than relying on three channels of news and uh, some some major publishers to get us our information, our information comes to us unvetted in all sorts of partisan ways. And it spreads with a swiftness and a scale that nobody could have anticipated before the era of the Internet and especially social media. And then I think it's important to say that beyond that, it's being reinforced at the moment, not just from the bottom, from, say, anonymous posters on some part of Reddit, but it's also coming from the top. And so we've seen in the last four years a tremendous amount of both misinformation and disinformation coming from on high in a sort of cycle where the bottom and the top are constantly reinforcing each other. And it's been accompanied by a growing mistrust of traditional sources and methods and people connected to the truth. And so there has been a kind of um, intensification, certainly, of both people convinced of things that are untrue, think of the QAnon supporters, for instance, And also, I think an intensification, and this may be even more alarming, of people who are not that worried anymore about what's true and what isn't, because they're in some ways convinced that everything is partisan information, that there is no such thing as an objective fact, even about something as seemingly concrete as, for instance, who won an election, which should be a matter of tabulating. (laughs) It should be. Um, You know, I was thinking as you were just speaking, you know, it... And the, the 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 mediums through which um, 
information now travels. And as you say, you know, these aren't traditional sources. There are, you know, uh, it's very easy now to put up a site that claims that it's engaged in a journalistic enterprise and have no fact checkers and, and, um, and um, in fact, have no journalists. Um, but, uh, and also, you know, um, still managed to have a tremendous uh, reach um, and command of um, citizens, various groups and contingencies of citizens' attention. Um, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, part of that sort of the, 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 the social mediafication of political news, I saw something from Pew recently that had an uncommonly high number about how, uh, how much of us, uh, you know, how many of us get our news, say we get our news from um, social media sources. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, it seems as if um, the way social media works, because it's an attention economy, you know, um, the more outrageous and unbelievable the claim is, um, the more quickly it spreads among, and the, the norm for outrageous claims, I'm thinking here of, you know, like the QAnon conspiracy theories, the norms for assessing those claims, it's sort of like the more outrageous the claim, the lower the standards of evidence have to, it has to meet. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> it seems, I, I think that's right. Yeah. Say something really wild. It's it's like the wilder the you know the, the it, it it's it's it, you know the wilder the claim you know nobody ex- you know the, the 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 threshold for you know the, the evidentiary threshold for believability somehow <laughs> plummets. Mm-hmm. Do you do, do you find that that's right? Do you find that's true? I mean, do, I, is that true to your experience? I think it's important to keep in mind that if we're getting our news primarily from platforms like YouTube or Twitter or uh, Facebook, we're essentially getting our news from for-profit companies. And that's important for a number of reasons. Of course, the New York Times is also a for-profit company, as as are the free media traditionally. But in this case, of course, these companies make money by keeping your eyeballs on them longer. And the algorithms are designed to keep your eyes there precisely because that's where advertising revenue comes from. The more people looking all the time, the more profitability. And I don't think that's, I don't mean this in a kind of conspiratorial way. It's just, it's just a basic business model. But the important thing therefore is that the algorithms have been designed to keep you giving you more of what you want to see. And what we want to see is generally not boring things. It's exciting things, sensational things. And we also want to see things that reinforce our own point of view and keep us in the loop with the rest of our friends and contacts. So in many ways, we're getting what we want, but what we want isn't necessarily so good for us. And that means a lot of sensational material, you know, designed to be clickbait or comes right into your phone everywhere you go all day long. And I think it's important that this is that the sort of escalation in this circulation of misinformation and disinformation has coincided with a pandemic in which we are more afraid than usual and more afraid even of our social contacts and our close friends and family and we are spending more time looking at screens and alone which is to right. say that information those sensational stories are kind of keeping us all going I mean, I, I know that I have the same problem as everybody else, which is stop looking at, you know, at the, the news constantly. 
or stop right. looking at Facebook or whatever it is that you're most attracted to. So we are, in a sense, bombarded with sensational stories. And it's very important also that because these are platforms and unlike, say, the New York Times, are not do not go through an editing process, are not do not have a kind of uh, truth determining process behind them in most cases. And we don't check always where everything comes from, though we should. We have very little way of determining easily what to believe and what not to, which means often people don't believe things that are true, and they often do believe things that are extremely far-fetched. I mean, the QAnon stuff takes you into a realm where on the surface, it just seems extraordinary that anyone could believe this. But if you were in a kind of loop in which you were being receiving this information all the time, and you were getting feedback from those around you, even electronically, telling you this was correct and adding new pieces to it, and you thought you were onto something, it's actually quite easy to imagine how somebody could feel they'd gotten hold of the real truth and essentially went down a rabbit hole. Yeah, that's, that's right. And so good that, that, that makes a nice segue into, you know, um, uh, the, the, the last question I wanted to, 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 to put to you. Um, now I'm just speaking for myself, though. I don't think that the sentiment I'm about to express is, um, will be unfamiliar to, to a lot of people and, and maybe not even you, Sophia. Um, but uh, I feel as if the past four years, you know, I've been um, uh, non-voluntarily involved in some kind of nationwide psychology experiment. <laughs> um, I feel like the nation has been um, subjected to an almost Solomon Ash-like um, uh, uh, experiment of, um, uh, you know, being asked to accept you know, accept um, what's accept things that are you know not in front of your eyes. Deny the things that are in front of your eyes, so on and so forth. Um, and I have to say that in the even the, the couple of weeks now since uh, we've gotten a new president, um, waking up in the morning and not having to think about the president has felt almost liberating to me. Um, I think so, you're not alone um, there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, just the that that there's no mental space being exerted or being occupied by you know um, by that particular human being in the world is um, you know is 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 uh, yeah feels like a, a a burden has been lifted, but. You know, having said all that, it seems that the the toll of uh, the past at least four years, um, you know, has has been in part sort of you know the erosion of trust in institutions. The erosion, and I think that this is true sort of across the political spectrum. I don't think that this we're only now talking about the extreme cases like the QAnon believers who you know think that uh, you know CNN is 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 all fiction and this sort of thing. I think that we've all, in a way, had to recalibrate our conception of. Um, uh, you know, w- w- where reliable information can be gotten, where information from those sources, you know, how, how reliable that information is. Um, and I guess, so, I, I guess I want to ask the hard question now, like given, um, given what we've just been talking about, um, do you think there's a way, there's a way back? Is there a way to repair this? Of course, that's the the hardest question now is is sort of where do we go from here? And right. I should say I should say immediately that as a historian, I'm better at talking about the past than the future because it's <laughs> you know, it's not a 
we're not prognosticators exactly. But I do think that the usefulness of thinking about the long history of this problem is that it does give us some um, ways of trying to understand better how we got into this mess might help us think about how to get out of it. And the easiest things to do are probably likely to be the least effective, alas, which is to say, I do think it's absolutely vital that, for instance, newspapers keep fact-checking, and they should keep fact-checking President Biden just as scrupulously as they fact-checked President Trump, because we need to have at least a kind of record as much as possible of what's accurate and what's true. So I, I do think that's important. I also think it won't persuade anybody who already, say, has gone down the rabbit hole of QAnon or has even just become increasingly disinterested and convinced that oh, every everything out there is equally flimsy as fact. To get any farther than that, it seems to me that we have to sort of tackle two things. One, tackle how to strengthen information, and the other is tackle how to strengthen democracy the latter being even harder. Um, In terms of information, it's very important to my mind to keep um, supporting those institutions that get us towards vetted or um, evidence-based notions of truth. That would be particularly schools, but it might include things like libraries and research centers too. But I think a whole new generation will need to be educated to really think about both how to be skeptical in the right ways and how to what methods can be used to get us towards truths, whether those are philosophical truths, scientific truths, um, historical truths. This will have to be a real focus of education going forward in a way that it has not been. Will that help? Long term, I hope so. But I do think at the broadest scale, some of this crisis of truth is reflective of larger cleavages in our society as a whole. Cleavages that are economic, that are geographic, that are educational. Cleavages that leave us, in a sense, living in largely different realities. Um, We've seen that, for instance, the way in which Democratic and Republican voters increasingly don't live near each other and don't necessarily work in the same spaces. And, the, and we don't participate in any of the same institutions. In other words, nobody, it's not, no, not everybody's been to the same schools or been drafted into the same army or anything else, which is, produces some of the wonderful multiplicity and pluralism of American life, but has also the downside that the world may objectively seem very, very different to people living in very different circumstances. And now with a media culture that is so niche that it appeals to our particular circumstances, we can really feel like we're a very, very divided nation, not just in terms of politics, but much more deeply than that. And that, I think, is a matter of thinking in both terms of economics and democratic building, how to find ways to produce some more commonality in our lives and reduce some of the fear that drives people to believe conspiracy theories, for instance. And I don't want to suggest in any way that I have a a real solution (laughs) to how to do that. But I do want to say that I don't think the the truth problem can be fixed just by, say, um, reconsidering the legal framework for Internet companies. Though I I do think that's important. I do think we need to think more perhaps about 
thinking of our media companies more like public utilities that have um, some that operate not simply as private businesses with a purely profit driven right. motive. But I don't think that alone will get us out of this predicament anytime soon. On the other hand, I do think it's important that we not despair because, you know, just as a final thought, democracy is a messy business and it always has been. And it's not necessarily that much messier than it's been in the past. It's just that the contours have it have changed. And um, I hope that I don't leave any listeners or readers of my book with the idea that this is a hopeless situation. In fact, what I do think looking historically does is in a sense empower us to think about long-term shifts and changes that can be um, sources of new ideas. But I'll leave the policy suggestions to somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, th- that's that, that's that's a good note uh, to end our conversation on. Um, Sophia, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Great. So you've been listening to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. As always, I want to thank our podcast team. Toby Napolitano at the University of California, Merced, handles our sound. Elizabeth Della Zazera of the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute is our communications coordinator. And Drew Johnson handles research for us at the University of Connecticut. We also want to give special thanks to Matt Gariglia for his creative inspiration. Um, The podcast, again, is produced by the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute's Future of Truth Project with generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. Thank you for listening and bye for now.